Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a Kafka S part of the Specgram podcast. I'm Trey Jones, and this Linguistic Roundtable Telesymposium is coming to you from our virtual conference center, hosted via satellite uplink from Lake Disappointment in Western Australia. Joining me today are Bill Spruill. Hey. And Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. Today on the program, again, we have two guests. Joining us yet again for more linguistic frivolity is Gabe Olson. Welcome back, Gabe. Hello again. Thank you. Hi, Gabe. Still not scared away, huh? All right. Also joining us again is Jonathan Downey. Welcome, Jonathan, and thanks for visiting us again. Utsman. Hello. Uh, I guess you didn't get enough abuse last time, huh? All right. Uh, let's start off again with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Here we go. I've got three language-related items, and two of them are true, and one is false. You guys have to figure out which is which, and after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. Today's topic is, who has how many of what? Part two. So some of you will remember we've done who has how many of what before, and it was horrible. So embrace the pain. Here we go. <laughs> Item number one. The Australian language, Jingili, has only three basic verbs, come, go, and do. Item number two. The Nigerian language, Igbo, has only eight adjectives in four contrasting pairs, large and small, dark and light, new and old, and good and bad. And item number three. The Congolese language, Nyanga, has only two interrogatives, why, and another one for who, what, when, and where. All right. Who wants to go first? Bill? Oh, I'm having trouble. They all sound plausible. The Australian language Jingili having only three basic verbs, that I could see in a number of languages because you get these things where the only really basic verb is kind of an auxiliary and everything else has been <laughs> nouned or participled or something like that. The Nigerian language Igbo having only eight adjectives yeah, that's doable, too, because it, it could be one of these languages that does everything with, like, relative clause things and only uses the adjectives occasionally. Congolese language having only two interrogatives, that makes sense, too. So it's kind of a wash. I am going to go ahead and just guess that number one is false. On the logic that if any language is only going to have three of something, it's not going to be an Australian one. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Because they're always the one that have like the 27 verb tenses. They're the 460 basic directional terms. <laughs> <laughs> well, only one word for snow. <laughs> all right who wants to go next i'll take a shot at this i listened to bill's logic and it sounded very much like field linguist logic trying to explain the fact that they actually got lost and don't know how they got lost um <laughs> i actually sounded like a generativist trying to hitchhike but the last one yanga having two interrogatives that kind of makes sense because you know in French, you can muck around with stuff to make it mean what you want it to mean with some words. Nigerian language, I think I actually know an Igbo speaker. So if I'd seen this long enough in advance, I could have asked him. But <laughs> Well, that's why you don't. That would be cheating. <laughs> yeah. Large, small, dark, light, new, old, good, bad. I would also add that there should be a fifth one, which is going to kill me versus not going to kill me. I think that's kind of important in most languages. Although suppose large, dark, bad could kind of mean something scary or a salesman. The Australian language only having three basic verbs. Now, see, this strikes me as a treism because they find the word basic. It could be that they have three basic verbs, but actually they have 150 verbs that are made up of the basic verb plus a prefix, a suffix, or a word mm. that Trey didn't want to class as a verb to try and knock us out. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to think that Jingili one is probably wrong. Hold on, there are two wrong and one right, isn't it? Yes, yeah. two wrong and one right. No. Two right and one wrong. Two right, right. and one wrong. I think I'm the first person to ever ask that. Um, <laughs> Today. I'm, Today. I'm going to say that two is wrong because they need the going to kill me, not going to kill me. One is right because some grammarian has mucked around with it to make it do that. And the third one is right because that makes sense. And so my educated guess is going to be that two is wrong. And there we go. Okay. Who wants to go next? Yeah, I agree with the Bill. This one's, they're all possibilities. I think the first and the second one 
are similar ideas, and I think they're probably both true because I think that a lot of the things we say in languages are highly unnecessary, and we probably don't need much more than come, go, and do in our everyday life. And I think we'd all be much happier if we only had this many verbs in our language. And the same with the second one. I think we could make do with half of these adjectives. So I'm going to go ahead and say just because, once again, they feel right. And I think the first two are true. But the third one I have a real problem with because I imagine the first time someone tried to ask, where is the bathroom? And someone asked, it's a place where there are stalls and people (laughs) urinate. (laughs) No, no. Uh, And he tried to distinguish between. And I think that right then and there, they would have made a split at least between where and what. So... Right, th- I think the third one is false. Okay. Keith? Well, that leaves me. Well, I... Oh, you're in a tough spot. You have to agree with somebody. I have to agree with somebody, and they all sound like uh, complete ignoramuses. So what can I do? Um, <laughs> Join us. Uh, <laughs> I'll agree with someone for a different reason. I think the three basic verbs, come, go, and do, that's true. They certainly also have some non-basic verbs, but... I'll take that as a true claim. Seems reasonable that you'd have three that are different from all the other ones. And the third one only has two interrogatives, why and something that means all the other things. Why not? True. And the second one, I think that this is probably false, but not for the reason that Jonathan gave. The reason it's false is that there are no languages that have an even number of, of adjectives. That's too balanced. <laughs> so balanced systems have attributive verbs and don't have a separate class of adjectives. But if you've got a system of adjectives, then you're going to have an uneven number of them because you don't want only antonym pairs in your adjectives. So I'm going to say the second one is false. Okay. Are you sure you're not a corpus linguist? Because that sounds <laughs> very much like corpus linguistics to me. I resent that accusation. <laughs> All right, let's take these in order, since uh, at least one person picked each of them. The Australian language with only three basic verbs, come, go, and do. That one is, in fact, true. Oh. Uh, (laughs) So there's Bill all by himself, and he actually got it wrong. Wow. Yeah. Is that the first time he's missed? Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) I resent resent the remark calling them basic verbs. Sounds like something Trey would do. You know, I'm not that tricky. You guys are just (sighs) sword losers. Jonathan also said it was a treeism, and Trees. something a tree. Yeah, and I don't, I don't see anything dendromorphic. About <laughs> <it>. <laughs> treeism, as in something you would see when you're bringing people lots of hot drinks. <laughs> Your version was funnier. <laughs> All right, so the second item there with uh, Igbo only having eight adjectives. This is apparently true. <sighs> no, yes. it's not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. no. And Jonathan, by the way, kill and not kill, I think that would probably be an aspect marker, not an adjective. What are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the last one, the Congolese language with only two interrogatives. That's one I made up. Yes. So the good news is I got a point, and I'm in the lead <laughs> with three, and Bill's in second place with two. And then, let's see, Keith has one out of four. Mm. And our guests now have two out of six. Ooh. So I think that means the guests are actually ahead of Keith. So welcome back to last place. <laughs> now you're comfortable again. <laughs> no, they've missed more than I have. You see, now you're not speaking like a corpus linguist. It's the proportions that count, not the actual numbers of currencies. <laughs> <laughs> We're interested in the raw data here. <laughs> exactly. Though it's a strange fact that most corpus linguists can't count past 100 because anything over that they can't count as a percent. And also p-values don't go above one, so that just confuses them. <laughs> Anything over 100 is statistically significant. All numbers are between zero and one for some value of one. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're talking like a physicist. Computer science, the joke is uh, two plus two equals five for very large values of two. <laughs> two plus two e- equals five modulo one? Or is that the wrong use of modulo? That is the wrong use of modulo. It was close enough. (laughs) I will use that in a conversation at some point. (laughs) Just not yet. (laughs) Once again, Jonathan has to run off and do some translating or other more important or at least more profitable work than hanging out with us. So thanks again for joining us, Jonathan. It's interpreting tree. Bye. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Bye, Jonathan. Bye, Jonathan. We'll be back in a second with some language news, but first a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by People for the Ethical Treatment of Functionalists. Functionalists. They're people, too. 
Welcome back. Via mention by Kevin Drum, who writes for some publication called Mother Jones, and who is busily trying to relate social trends to lead contamination rather than acacia trees, we have learned of research by Kimmo Erickson, who has done a study in which he presented reviewers who had MAs or PhDs with articles to review. Some of the articles were distinctive in having nonsense equations in them. Kimmo found, and I quote, when the reviewer had a degree in a tech-related area, the addition of the nonsense equation had no effect. In fact, it reduced their rating of the abstract slightly. But if the reviewer's degree was in the humanities, social sciences, medicine, or education, the added math raised their rating of the abstract significantly, unquote. In other words, mathematicians and engineers apparently view mathy elements the way construction workers view hard hats. They represent something you need for work, and you evaluate them. Humanities and education folk, on the other hand, view mathy elements the way accountants and middle managers at a gay bar view construction boots. It's a role <laughs> accessory. What's your opinion? Well, actually, one thing I really liked about this paper is it, it reminded me of a paper that I'm working on at the moment that it will appear probably just in my blog. But it, it's on a theory I'm calling the, the linguistification optimality theory. And... Mm. Uh, yeah, it was a term I came up with for uh, writing undergrad papers called linguistification. When you linguistify a paper, you just sprinkle just various linguistic sounding words and phrases in hope of achieving a better mark. You know, words like anticipatory coarticulation or morphophonemically significant or morphosyntactically motivated. There's a couple tricks that one is to make sure your professor has just enough knowledge of linguistics so they won't go ask a colleague in the linguistics department for help, but not so much that they'll see through your ploy. And of course, the other trick is to use just enough linguistic jargon as to enhance your paper, but again, not so much the professor sees through it. And this perfect mm. balance is called the linguistification optimality theory. Mm. So it's very similar. And the only hitch I can see is that in the paper, Dr. Erickson was referring to how people who are not familiar with math, they hold math in an unhealthy awe, as he says. But I fear this will never happen in linguistics. <laughs> no. Well, most people stand in awe of math. Most people just stand in mild confusion of linguistics. So mm -hmm. That's one of the central tenets of the paper, though, is that mild confusion has value. Right, but I just didn't think it was the same sort of awe. That it was no, kind of no, no, no. Well, <laughs> angry. Yeah. Hmm. So I think the awe of math, whatever, for every reason that math has that aura of awe, causes instant confusion in some people, while inducing a little linguistics causes confusion, which then in some people gets turned into not awe necessarily, but mild respect, perhaps. That's what I'm hoping for. I mean, right. what I was really, really hoping trying to achieve with the linguistification in a paper is, is really, and it, it seems like the same with this math thing too, is you just have to play into the ego of the professor. Because I mean, I know one of the reasons I got into academia was because of my huge ego. <laughs> <laughs> because it would work great. A student did this to me. If they just used just the right amount of pseudo math, I would never take the trouble of seeking out a, a person in the math department because I would figure, you know, I don't need help. I can figure this out myself. Hmm. I would have to admit that I didn't know something, and that's not going to happen. So, hmm. I think one of the big problems with this paper, in addition to the Mother the Jones article, I actually looked up the original paper, and there weren't any equations in it, so I don't think it's really science. Hmm. Well, but it had all sorts of – look, look, look. I'm looking at the original paper right now, and it says right here, asterisk, P is less than 0.05. Now, that there is – There was I'm some math in it, but there weren't any equations. <laughs> uh, it's statistics – Seriously, I'm surprised the author's still alive and hasn't been hacked to pieces by the math ninjas. Because, <laughs> I mean, this is a big secret that he's letting out. She, it. I guess now that the cat's out of the bag, we can talk about it. But it's clear that some linguists have known about this for a long time. One of my all-time pet peeves is Goldsmith's, in his, his famous PhD dissertation, he had a, a section called Excursus on Formalism. And it was pages mm. of mathy gobbledygook. And in grad school, I was the only one who actually bothered to understand it. It brings in uh, algebra and set theory and all this other stuff. And it comes down to don't cross lines when you're drawing diagrams for syllable structure. <laughs> it doesn't use it for anything, but just like formalizes don't cross lines and no cheating drawing around the top. I mean, that's really what it is. <laughs> so, wait, wait, I want to know in what way was the mathematics supposed to be helpful in formalizing this. I mean, why didn't he just say, don't cross lines? And don't cheat, yeah. I mean, you have to throw in the don't cheat, because there's always that smart ass in your freshman linguistics class. Well, what if I draw across the top? It's not really crossing. <laughs> 
that's just it. It doesn't really come up again. <laughs> it was just like, here's some math, be afraid. <laughs> but I think mathematicians have known this for a very, very, very long time. And that's why a 100-page math book costs four times as much as a 300-page linguistics textbook. Look at it this way, too. When you go to college, and you probably noticed this when you were a freshman, you have some classmates who are writing things that are pretty straightforward and obvious. And they react by printing it on a really good paper and buying a fancy report cover <laughs> when they hand it in. And then by the time you're a junior, you've noticed that not only are they doing that, some of the professors are giving it a higher grade, frequently the professors who go into administration. <laughs> <laughs> tells you something about the way the world works. And so... Let's say that you're a linguist and you want to say something exciting like, well, for a long time, people have talked about verbs as taking a certain number of compliments. So this verb wants compliments, that verb wants one, this other one wants three. And what I want to say is that the explanation of this, the explanation of why that verb wants two, is that it's a two-complement having verb. And so, if you use fewer complements, there's a problem. And if you use more, there's a problem because it's a two-complement having verb. <laughs> now, that does That's not, not very convincing, anyone. Bill. That does not excite anyone. <laughs> but if you start adding the Greek letter theta. Ah, <laughs> now you're getting somewhere. And you use italics. <laughs> it starts becoming much more interesting, right? In parentheses. You, you got to do this thing with angle brackets because then they're different from parentheses. <laughs> okay. But as a linguist, you can understand that at a meta level, there's semantic bleaching. Italics is no longer good enough. Regular parentheses right. aren't enough. You have to use the angle brackets and small caps. Go on. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So it's, it is amazing what kind of unexciting statements when placed into a hard-to-read format will pick up connotations of value simply by the amount of effort it took you to read that. But you know what? I have a little bit of a disagreement there because I think the point of this paper is that, in fact, people don't read that at all. They just skip over and assume, oh, oh wow, it's technical. I'm going to have to skip that section of the paper when I get to it, right? So I think it's the sort of brick wall. It's, it's the black box, and you don't know what's inside the black box, and you feel guilty that you don't know what's inside the black box, but you know that it must be insightful because the other person went to all the trouble to do that work. One thing that's particularly useful about this is it lets us move towards a grand unified theory that combines linguistic formalism and postmodern literary criticism because they're using the same strategy but with different externalities, right? <laughs> Under some definition of externality that's different from economics, and so I'll need a Greek letter Ada for it. <laughs> I have successfully killed all conversation. <laughs> We're amazed because you referred to what was it, uh, postmodern literary criticism, something. Once again, our brains shut off. Yep. <laughs> I think, Keith, that you might be interpreting the way that readers interpret mathematical symbols and technical sections of papers incorrectly. I think Bill is still right that there's value assigned to the difficulty of reading it, mm -hmm. but the lazy reader or the reader pressed for time is using a reading strategy and just a heuristically assigning a difficulty based on the number of formulas, equations, Greek letters, angle brackets, small caps, italics, and just assigning the difficulty it would take to read that. Mm -hmm. That's a predictive difficulty right. assignment. Yeah. Okay. Right. If you think about it in terms of the value that you're going to get out of it, in terms of certainly if you can assess for yourself how much of it you're actually going to even remember, and if that's going to be zero, there's no point in actually <laughs> going to the difficulty of reading it if you can get a, you know, a reasonable prediction of the difficulty of reading it. Uh, and so you just save all that time. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about how I read uh, philosophy of language papers. I just I get to that point where I, get, I see a whole section of stuff and I go, uh, I don't think I'm going to retain any of this. <laughs> so, right. so why I bother reading it? Exactly. I'm going to skip to the conclusion and see if I can right. kind of make sense of the paper. Right. Yeah. I think this conclusion is, uh, it's interestingly related to this notion in publishing that every equation in a popular science book cuts sales in half. 
<laughs> I've seen that claim made. Mm. I think there's a relationship here in that, you know, maybe the equations equal hard to understand, you know, using these heuristics for how difficult it would be to read it if you actually bothered. And so in a pop science book, that turns off readers while it impresses readers of journal articles. But I'm curious, what do you guys think? Why do math and stats and equations in general get so much prestige? I'm glad they do because I've personally benefited. That's why I'm the managing editor. I don't get it. To me, calculus was easier than French, and I remember more calculus than French. I think part of it is just the reputation that it gets. It's just for so long, people have decided that math is hard and calculus is hard. And so the people that we see, oh my goodness, the people that took the time to learn it, they must know it. So I guess I just better trust them. So if I see it in a paper, obviously, I think uh, keep the same for Look, see, we see someone has taken the time to, to do the math. You know, I, I just am going to accept it at face value, I suppose. So. I don't know if that's helpful or not. So I think it's because we typically associate math with fields where you can make predictions before something happens, and then the results validate your predictions or not, as opposed to humanities, where you look at stuff that's already happened and make them fit your theory. <laughs> so do you mean, Bill, like when you're talking about in like astrophysics where they've made predictions about how these things should move or what sort of planets should be here, that kind of stuff, and it right. turns out there, right? So, okay. Right. As opposed to, for example, since I have decided that Freudian analysis explains things in this text, I will now interpret the cigar as a phallic symbol. <laughs> So you're talking about, you know, real predictive power versus pseudo-predictive right. power. Yeah. Right, exactly. Versus ex post facto prediction. <laughs> we already had an example, though, of a humanities-based prediction that is verifiable, which is, I'm going to read this and I'm not going to retain any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I would well, also point out that a lot of people don't find the calculus easier than French. No, and... I think that's part of the issue, Yeah. And some of this is because mathematicians don't use words right, and it takes time to get through that, <laughs> right? They use the word function all wrong. <laughs> so the average high school graduate has never taken a statistics class, right, and has never been exposed to statistics. So there's a very yeah, there's, there's a, a lower baseline chance they have, but yeah. The average person, I think, hasn't, right? And they have had literary theories like the cigar as a phallic symbol. They've been whacked over the head with those. So there's a higher baseline in terms of familiarity with certain kinds of fields than there is with mathematics. And then, yeah, I think math, why does math have such high status? Because people think that it can do things that it can't do. Oh, well, now I'll have to jump to math's defense. It, it can't actually do all those Go things. Go ahead. It can, <laughs> it can do all those things. Yeah. Everything it's purported to do? Pretty much, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> I also think there may be some differences in the quality of math education, or there's some facts about the quality of math education that affect the degree to which it's absorbed by people who actually do take things like statistics classes, right? So, I mean, face it, your average statistician, well, put them in front of the class, and what do you get? A <laughs> uh, 94% chance of at least one person snoring. <laughs> I've been in that class. <sighs> Only 37% chance it was me. <sighs> uh, to be fair, though, that's about the same proportion as in most classes. <laughs> well, then I have crunched the numbers incorrectly. No, no, you're making an absolutely true statement about proportions. <sighs> it was just presented in a way that could be easily misinterpreted. Not that this has anything to do with statistics. <laughs> <laughs> I also have the sense that most of us that have had some social science education have been exposed to a lot of uh, misapplications. So we've been exposed to a lot of applications of statistics, which were not actually appropriate to the thing being described. And maybe we kind of have this vague sense that, wow, that's a powerful tool. It can do anything, but we don't actually know what it can do. We sort of have a, a sense behind that, that mm, maybe it can't actually explain all phenomena. And so there's just, a lot, I think, a lot of uneasiness and a lot of unclarity about what exactly math would be appropriate for in, in social sciences. And linguistics, of course, is just teetering on the edge of, of actually being a social science. <laughs> I got a question there. 
do you think there's a cultural aspect to certain fields that encourages them to accept the notion that something is just too hard to understand? Because among competitive math nerds, that's a sign of weakness and the lions will turn on you and eat you. <laughs> or at least take the derivative of your constant. Uh, the- that's a math joke, guys. All right, anyway. There is a <laughs> fundamental difference here you are overlooking, however, which is yes. that the mathematical fields, rightly or wrongly, are perceived by a lot of people as ones that you can make money with. <laughs> mm, yes. Which means that if you have something that is driving one of these Darwinian struggles for status or this idea that admitting it looks hard and you're not going to work on it and that's a sign of weakness, etc., that kind of thing, if you put it in a situation where everyone is thinking but I can make money with this. And if I look around me, it's normal for only like 20% of the class to still be there when you get to the upper levels and that kind of thing. If you compare that with, please major in our field, please, (laughs) please major in our field now. It loves you. Um, You get a bit of a culture difference. I see. Hmm. (laughs) One thing I was thinking about when you were talking about stats a little bit was this idea that I think it benefits people who are putting out articles that people share on Facebook and as reputable as they always are, (laughs) people who write these articles benefit from the fact that most people don't know how to interpret stats. And so they can just present a bunch of stats and just say, therefore, whatever. Yeah. And and the majority of people are going to buy it. I think most people benefit from the fact that the average person doesn't know how to interpret stats. I mean, I'm not great with stats. so I mean, I would never admit that. Never mind. I take that back. (laughs) I just realized I said that I'd never admit that. We all know the basics, which is that whatever else somebody is saying, they're supposed to mention Bayes first. (laughs) And then it all gets better. Right. (laughs) But I think one of the interesting social things we're seeing in linguistics right now is that because of the development of the Internet and the utility of data mining, we're suddenly getting the intersection, the perception of financial benefit with linguistics. And that's behind some of the rapid changes that everyone in the field is responding to. You have more of the Darwinian types, instead of just focusing on, I am going to dominate my tiny theory group, (laughs) there are actually big guns coming in going, I'm going to try to make titanic amounts of money. And whether they're right in thinking that or not is a completely (laughs) separate issue. It's attracting people who think that way, and that's changing the culture of the field. You have an interesting thesis, but the non-disclosure agreement I've signed with the company I work for prohibits me from commenting further. Yes. (laughs) And it doesn't really matter. Whatever you said, I would find some way to interpret as supporting my position anyway. (laughs) Because I learned something from the humanities. (laughs) And now a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by Linguists for a Better Tomorrow a nonprofit company focused on helping linguistics graduates to avoid becoming English teachers. Donate now to give a graduate student hope. Okay, and we're back. Well, based on feedback received from our listeners, it's time for some more comprehensive exam questions. Well, okay, at least we haven't received any negative feedback, so why not? Regular listeners will remember that this is the segment of the show where we provide aid to pitiable graduate students, some of whom even as we speak, are sweating bullets preparing for their comprehensive exams. Students, we're here to help you with sample answers to the questions that we predict will be most popular with departmental exam committees this year. So are we ready? Here we go. The first question this year, and we're sure you're going to hear this, is from the history of linguistics. Here's the question. Discuss Saussure's concepts of langue and parole. How do we see these ideas reflected in modern linguistic theories? Who'd like to go first? I'll go first. (laughs) Trey. Instead of realizing that philosophizing language into some platonic abstraction that exists entirely outside of speakers, or almost as bad as a linguistic average across a community of speakers, leads to a simplified view of big L language and a misunderstanding of language as an embodied phenomena of the human mind. 
And Chomsky calced the long parole distinction into a competence performance distinction that allowed him and his followers to discount huge swaths of theoretical and practical linguistics without a second thought, while holding the distinction like a loaded gun aimed at the heads of field linguists, empiricists, and other potential critics, ready to blast them into irrelevancy with a single pronouncement. Now, that's a reasonably good answer if you're at a non-generativist school. <laughs> yeah, you better be a little careful where you use that answer. <laughs> yeah. In a generative environment, you should just point out how long and parole prefigures competence performance and how they're the greatest thing since sliced bread when it comes to hacking away at uninteresting phenomena to get at the real theoretical meat of language. <laughs> you know, Trey, I thought up an answer to this too, and it's also for those that are at non-generativist schools. And the answer that I thought you might say is something like, well, actually, these concepts are only represented in pre-modern theories, not modern ones. There hasn't been a new theory created that utilized this long parole distinction since 1957, and that was before the invention of the desktop computer. I mean, come on, let's give Freddie his place in history and move on, okay? <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Gabe, did you have any sample answer for our pitiable grad student listeners? Yes, I did, but I needed to add a little disclaimer first, of course, the fact that I'm just <laughs> in my master's. So if there's anybody listening who's studying for, you know, actual comprehensive exams, you can feel free to disregard, like, everything that I say. So um, We're going to edit that comment out. Go ahead. <laughs> I was thinking more toward a generative school because I'm going to a generative school myself, so I have to be careful what I say when it comes to these kind of things. So, of course, we all know the difference that long and parole, long referring to the pure structure of language and its rules, uncluttered by the way people actually speak it, which we know makes for imprecise pseudoscience. <laughs> And of course, the parole, you know, referring to the way people speak the language in the real world and real situations. But with respect to modern theories, the second part of the question, I've noticed a real worrying trend in fields such as sociolinguistics or second language acquisition, which are straying from the pure theoretical language study and wandering into the dangerously messy world of the parole. Because this, of course, necessitates speaking with real people in the real world. And, you know, most of us academics do what we can to avoid that at all costs. So I think it is definitely time to erase any reference to actual language in the study of linguistics. Make it purely theoretical. Mm. You're going to win points with your committee on that. <laughs> Save that, because when your comprehensive exams come up, you're all set. Bill, did you want to add another sample yeah, answer to this? Just a note of meta theory. If you look at the shift from the... <laughs> the long parole distinction to the competence performance distinction, which is the one you would bring up here. What it highlights beneath and around all of these other features is the sheer potential for rebranding through framing. Okay, because if you say, for example, okay, we've got Saussure's notion of long, which is the system underlying what you do. And what I want to focus on is how you apply that to tell if a move is good or not. And we have parole, which is what happens during language use. And I want to shift that to, and I'm not interested in that. <laughs> if you phrase it that way, not that much is going to happen. On the other hand, if you take these two already existing terms that people in the field know, but you substitute your own terms for your flavors of them, and then make sure all of your students refer to your terms, not the previous ones, you can control an entire generation of theory. <laughs> and you need to remember that as a candidate. <laughs> Just because there are already terms for things that you can limit and put an interpretation on doesn't mean that you can't own them. <laughs> Think big. Okay, well, thank you for those inspiring words for the aspiring graduate students. Let's move on to the next question, which will come from the area of morphology. Okay, here it is. Discuss the relationship between word order and the prevalence of prefixes versus suffixes. Based on these insights, how do you account for infixation? Maybe I'll go first just to give you what I consider to be the most insightful possible answer to this, and then you guys can follow up with the secondary leftovers. Prefixes correlate with verb-object order, and suffixes correlate with object-verb order. Everybody knows that, right? Clearly, the important thing is whether speakers are used to seeing their verbs from the front, that's verb-object, <laughs> or from the back, that's the object-verb order. So this means that prefixes must correlate with future tense, and suffixes must correlate with past tense. Now, English bears this out. 
So we have the future gonna, as in gonna go, which is a prefix in the middle of grammaticalization. So in some dialects, you have something like I'm gonna go. So that's our emerging prefix, while the past tense morpheme in English is a suffix, right? D or ed, it's spelled. Okay, so therefore, infixation must correlate with something like progressive aspect, because it's going to be right in the middle. And progressive aspect must correlate with verbs that interrupt the object. Right. <laughs> now, English doesn't apparently bear out these predictions. Instead, English gives us some kind of ambifixation for progressive. So where we've got the construction is verb-ing, right? right? And now this demonstrates that infixes are actually coalesced ambifixes. Now, would you guys like to give any other possible answers, or have I pretty much covered it? I can make a stab at this one, I think. The important point here lies in your distinction between the morphology of the word and word order. The only really important thing here is the interface between the morphology and the syntax. And at the point of the interface, nothing is underlyingly infixed. So mm, I, mm. that's just a, a completely separate modular phenomenon. And so the apparent difficulty simply dissolves once you adopt the proper assumptions about how language supports your model. Okay. So what I take from this is that I should dissolve apparent difficulties. I should have modular systems. And if I'm desperate, I could try and appeal to humor, in which case I would say that I have absolutely no idea how to account for infixation. <laughs> okay, okay, that's... Gabe, you have any thoughts on this one? Uh, I don't think I'm going to attempt to try to follow any of that up. I think you've definitely covered it all. I, I guess, yeah, I think that's why. Well, let's move on to the <laughs> next subject area, which is syntax. The question that we expect to be popular this year in syntax is, how do you define lexical categories? What is the functional value for a language for having such categories? Who has some thoughts on this that you'd like to share? I think lexical categories are a set of categorical perception errors made by linguists without proper training in statistics or psychology in their interpretation of the probability distribution of lexical items across various speech patterns they wish to assign syntactic labels to. Now, the functional value of lexical categories varies as a function of the number of speakers of a language. And at the high end, among major world languages, having more distinct lexical categories is valuable to the language and to the polyglot, but not to the linguist, because they enable the language to be more easily learned and to function as a lingua franca. At the low end, among endangered languages, having fewer distinct lexical categories is more valuable to both the language and the linguist, because it feeds a virtuous cycle of publication, public awareness, tenure, and documentation and revitalization efforts. <laughs> That's a very complete answer. I doubt that we can add anything to that, but let's try I should say you shouldn't use this approach unless your department has a strong statistical, computational, or cognitive scientific bent, or in some cases, a postmodern lit crit hegemony. In the former case, it's acceptable to point out that linguists don't really know what they're doing because they don't really have enough empiricism, which is like fiber, something everybody knows is good for you, but nobody actually likes. <laughs> and in the latter case, it's okay because Derrida. <laughs> because, just because Derrida. <laughs> I don't think I can add much to the, the definition of lexical categories at the moment, but I think for the functional value, I think there's another part that you're missing, though, Trey. One very good value of lexical categories in linguistics is they allow people who take the time to learn the differences between noun and verb pairs like affect and effect, or between adjectives and adverbs, and then be highly judgmental and snooty about those that don't know how to use them properly. <laughs> Like when a cop pulls you over and tells you you were driving too fast, you as a snooty prescriptivist can reply, actually, you mean to say I was driving too quickly or too rapidly. <laughs> Although I would not actually recommend saying this to a real police officer. Just as so a that's disclaimer. a functional value from, from a sociolinguistic perspective. Bill, I'm sure, can give us a functional value from a syntactician's perspective. Bill? Well, of course. The, <laughs> part of the, the issue here is that all languages have to have the same underlying structure. Mm. But if you look at how particular words are used, they usually don't cooperate with that program. Now, one way around this is to create a set of abstract categories to which words can be assigned such that they then substantiate the claims you're making about what all languages share. Once you set mm. up those categories, they're always limited. I mean, you get more points if there are fewer categories, right? So like a five 
if you want to say universally there's only noun and verb and then maybe squish or something. <laughs> if you can have a limited number of things like that, all you really then have to do is say for the evidence in each particular language, what kind of assumptions can I adopt so that they fit the categories I want to put them in? Mm. That is Excellent. much, yeah, that's much easier than having a titanic number of what we might call nano categories per language <laughs> and trying to fit each of them to your theory. Which would be lots of extra work. Yeah. And probably and require more pages than your department will accept in your dissertation. <laughs> and you don't get to talk about elegance. Because they're messy. Right. I mean, they're all over the place. That's mess is not elegant. What could be more elegant than every lexical item being its own lexical category? Well, as a matter of fact, I thought of an answer that's I thought of an answer that's sort of along those lines. I think the answer I would give, so this was defining lexical categories and talking about the functional value of them. So I think lexical categories is a syntactic shorthand for words that cannot occur under the same node without compounding or some other smoke and mirrors definitional trick. And without this concept, all the words in a language would be different, right? But that would be predictable. They would be predictably different, which is not interesting. But with this concept, the linguist is enabled to express what we might call technically flabbergastedness <laughs> when discovering any of the many words which don't fit into the established categories. Ah. Uh, so it gives you lots of things to write papers about, is how I would summarize <laughs> that. You have to have the potential for violation of rules before the violation can be surprising. Exactly, exactly. Or flabbergasting. Right. Okay, well, let's move yes. on, having dealt adequately with syntax for, for this year. And the last question we want to talk about is a very specific one from phonetics phonology, sort of on the borderline, and that is this. Define rhinoglottophilia. Comment on its relevance. I'm sure you all studied up on this in your reviewing for your comprehensive exams. When... Uh, I'm just going to take a position statement on that one as my answer. <laughs> Fine. I don't want to judge anybody else's research at all. I mean, I'm sure there's a large amount of value in studying any text. But personally, I don't want to study 4chan. <laughs> and I think that as a valued member of this program, that my wishes for content control would be valued. <laughs> <laughs> That is an excellent answer. Do you know how often you can use that? Once a month, once a quarter, once in your life? Because I can see that applying to lots of different subjects. You might even use it twice during the same comprehensive exam if you notice <laughs> that the committee members are drifting off and you think they've forgotten. Well, <laughs> an additional value to that particular one is that it doesn't matter what your religion is or even if you're atheist, that site will probably offend it. <laughs> And is therefore against your principles. My only comment was that it's important not to get rhinoglottophilia confused with rhinoblottophilia, which is a penchant among <laughs> certain members of the biological family, rhinoceratidae, to enjoy getting blackout drunk and is in no way relevant yes. to linguistics. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, we don't want to get those mixed up. I hope this is not connected with one of the worst words of 2012. <laughs> <laughs> My sample answer for this is rhinoglottophilia is the tendency of nasal and glottal features to occur together in speech sounds such as <laughs> Jim Matisoff discovered this tendency while observing the snoring of somnambulating Lahu villagers in Thailand back around 1970. <laughs> the significance of the term is that it's the funniest term ever created by a linguist, with the possible exception of grammaticalization. <laughs> Gabe, did you have anything to add on this one? Well, a little bit. I just wanted to, first of all, put out a little bit of warning if you're studying this sort of thing. Careful Googling words like this, because there's some people with some wacky fetishes out there. I mean, I'm not judging. Teach their own. I was just thinking of the word itself, rhinoglottophilia. If you break it down, rhinos meaning nose or nasal, and glotto meaning the glottis, and then philia meaning an attraction. That's why I thought where you get words like button, or the way that certain people pronounce button, it's the nasal sound attracting a glottal stop into the word. And so I think it's probably a trend that's going to start happening across more words that have nasals in them. That's about all I have. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, it will be on the rise, especially in the most popular words of 2013. Let's move on to a bonus tip. So one of the things you need to be on the lookout for in your comprehensive exams is when Professor X brings up her favorite 
that subject. Be watching out. This is going to happen. Some professor is going to do this. It'll come from at least one of your examiners, maybe two. Normally, this will come in the form of something like, could you please comment on why, where why is the favorite hobby horse of the professor who asks the question. And we wanted to give you some tips on how to handle this because this is a very delicate situation that you're going to find yourself in. I'll go first. So this question has to be answered with extreme tact. Acceptable answers will express admiration for some aspect of the theory or the issue that the professor is interested in without, and this is the key, without endorsing it in its entirety because you can be certain that some other member of the committee thinks it's a silly theory and will fail you if you take sides with Professor X. So we recommend expressing your endorsement something like this. Why enables us to handle certain apparent contradictions with admirable facility while avoiding the problems that were inherent in theories such as LFG or GPSG? I believe we have a lot to learn from why and certainly look forward to learning more about it in the course of my further studies. I actually think that there are a number of well-established social schemata for this interaction and that your specific answer was an instantiation of one of the middle-of-the-road ones, which is fairly safe. I'm aiming for safe here. We've all seen the crash and burn of the worst of them, which is failing to recognize that you're discussing Professor X's pet theory and either expressing ignorance of it or worse, saying how little you really think of it, right? That's the terrible way to go. Yes, that that would not be good. Perhaps a little bit less safe version than Keith's is the obvious fawning and mentioning the obvious importance of the topic and the obvious contributions made by Professor X and any well-known intellectual predecessors of Professor X. And that won't win you any friends. And like Keith said, it could actually get you some enemies, but at least Professor X won't be your enemy. I think that there's actually uh, one of the best outcomes is that if there aren't any enemies of Professor X that you have to contend with is a sort of false bait and switch approach. And you describe the topic in minimal detail, point out a significant flaw in a simplified version of the idea, and then rescue the theory with a clever reformulation or extension, preferably one based on Professor X's own pet theories, and use phrases like deeper understanding and quantum and revelation and neoteric, and mention <laughs> Professor X by name two or three times, but not more than that. And then the increase in adrenaline that Professor X experiences from the criticism will enhance their feelings of well-being and gratitude and, and affection during the rescue phase. Oh, that's an excellent yes. approach. <laughs> it, now, it gets, it gets a little dangerous here, but in the case where Professor X does, in fact, have an arch nemesis who's also present during the discussion, you may find what we will call Professor Anti-X. You may find that Professor Anti-X may corner you later and upbraid you for your unfortunate public display of support for Professor X's crackpot theories. Now, intermediate practitioners of conversation foo should come clean and admit they were just trying to curry some favor while avoiding, you know, a fruitless debate with Professor X. Advanced students of the art can go meta-meta and try to convince Professor Anti-X that they were in fact shining on Professor X and that they expected Professor Anti-X to realize this and appreciate the additional level of social and intellectual complexity of the discussion. Now, again, this is only for advanced practitioners for use on an arch nemesis. Don't go with a merely aggressive colleague of Professor X. That's not a suitable target, right? This is serious conversational judo here, but I think it's worth knowing about. You have to be careful not to come across as criticizing the arch nemesis in the process, though. So, yeah, it's it's uh, very, very delicate. But it's just like we were talking about earlier with the nonsense math, right? As you say, well, I assumed you were smart enough to realize, you know, not quite in such blatant terms. <laughs> Obviously, you would realize that I was, I was playing a trick on Professor X. And just shining him on, as they say. Anyway, that will work if the confrontation comes after the yes, 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 the exam. But if it comes during the exam, then you've got other problems. Yes. There is a modification of that approach that is you're basically trying to apply Renaissance British foreign policy <laughs> to your comprehensives. That's what I did. <laughs> you basically start by saying it's crucial to pin down definitions for a couple of these terms. Almost everyone will agree with that because it pretty much always is. And then when you're bringing the terms up, what you're trying to do is bring them up in a way that Professor X's and Professor Anti-X's positions come into direct conflict as they're trying to articulate how they're bent down. You can then usually sit back. Yes. This is what is commonly referred to as the big brother approach, which is take two siblings, start a fight, and walk away. Right. Yes. And I have seen people <laughs> survive their comprehensive exams by exactly this approach. They never had to say anything. 
Gabe, did you want to add a thought or two on this delicate situation? Well, truthfully, I think, once again, considering that I haven't taken my comprehensive exams, I think anything I might say would actually probably be detrimental. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, probably counterproductive. Yourself. So I, I think for further job applications and whatnot, I would like to plead the, the fifth, as it were. On the other hand, this is your opportunity to sabotage potential competitors. <laughs> by giving them advice that you yourself would never take clearly you're not anybody's older brother all right <laughs> i was a younger brother okay getting well <laughs> all right i think that's all the advice for the students we can handle today so let's stop there uh there you go students you're all set and if these particular questions don't happen to come up on your exam don't sweat we've prepared you well just use these answers anyway if they're good enough for us ling nerds they're good enough for your committee members too all right, that's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Thanks again to our guest, Gabe Olson, for hanging out with us this time. And join us next time when we interview a syntactician and a semantician who are married, and we discuss whether mixed marriages can work. Hosted via satellite uplink from Lake Disappointment. All right, who's smashing things? <laughs> so, that was my bad, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. The Australian language jingle... Uh, it's okay to rehash things every once in a while. I, I think it is. In fact, I do it on purpose sometimes. It's good. It makes people feel like there's some continuity, you know, overall. So, yeah, that's right. That's oh, right. I thought it was just because it was like real linguistics. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, two wrongs don't make a right, but three lefts do. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bill, try not to mention, you know, by name, okay? <laughs> the person you always had to watch for at the comprehensives was. That's who I would think, yeah. If you're at a non-generative school, generative, blah, blah, blah. if you're at a non-generative, generativist school, generative school, generative school, generative school, the way accountants and middle managers at a gay bar view construction boots, it's a role <laughs> accessory. What's your opinion? <laughs> Just give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> that one caught me off guard. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 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 All right. Such as <laughs> I can't do it. Sorry. Such as <laughs> it's hopeless. I'll try that later. <laughs> Maybe somebody else can do it. Is that too cynical? No. It's fine. Nobody listens twice anyway. It's okay to rehash things every once in a while. I, I think it is. In fact, I do it on purpose sometimes. So as an actual big brother, I really have done that. I was young and cruel. That's all, <laughs> folks. <laughs>